Well, good morning, everybody. I'm glad that you are here. Uh, if you haven't uh, signed the roll sheet at your table, go ahead and do that. And like I said, find James chapter four. Just a couple more weeks in the book of James. And just to let you know, we're uh, headed in the fall semester and the spring semester. So all school year long, we'll be going through the book of Acts. So if you want to read ahead and kind of get familiar with where we're going to be in the school year, we will be in the book of Acts. But for today and for the next couple of weeks, we'll be wrapping up James. James chapter 4 today, we'll look at the first 12 verses. Last week... Uh, we talked about the power of the tongue. So if you remember from last Sunday, we talked about how the tongue is this uncontrollable fire and, and we need the gospel to bring a new fire, the spirit of God that motivates us to say different things, to say the right things rather than things that are from below. This week in James chapter four, uh, we're gonna continue the uh, the topic of words and conflict and sin in mind. And, and James is going to keep that in our mind. So we're moving from the tongue in particular to conflicts more broadly. Now, I think all of us have experienced the tension and the frustration of conflict with others, this unresolved problem that exists between you and another person. We've all experienced the hurt of being opposed by people. Sometimes we're opposed by our enemies. Sometimes we find ourselves being opposed by our friends. We've all experienced the hurt that comes from that kind of opposition. We've also probably experienced the guilt of mistreating and opposing others. So, so we've all been recipients of the, the kind of the aftermath of conflict, and we've all been transgressors in conflict. And as we'll see, James is going to use really stark language to talk about this problem in our lives and in our hearts. And unfortunately, the reality of sinful conflict doesn't disappear once we come to church. I mean, obviously, I don't, I don't think it needs to be argued that we live in a world that is full of conflict, and that loves conflict. So I don't know if you guys look at um, changes in algorithms to social media use. Maybe that's just not the thing that you check out uh, every now and again. Uh, but sometimes I do, and, and often, most often, the thing that drives engagement more than anything is hot takes, controversy, and conflict. Things that make people angry are the things that keep people on a social media app, right? And so people know that. And so algorithms will put things in front of you to get a rise out of you and to stir up conflict because they know that's how they'll get engagement. So you live in a world that loves conflict because it's profitable. But when we come into the church, although we recognize that conflict isn't profitable in that kind of way, we're still susceptible to it. So if we're going to display the love of Christ to a world embroiled in conflict, addicted to conflict, then pursuing peace and contentment will be a priority for us. But how do we do that? So the title of our message, the cause and the cure of conflict. This is what we want to talk about in James chapter four. In the first couple of verses, we're going to see the cause of conflict. And there's not going to be a huge 
plot twist. I think we all kind of know what's coming. The cause of conflict is our own sinful desires, our own sinful hearts. And then the cure for conflict will be, uh, again, not a surprise. It's, it's repentance and faith. James isn't going to give us uh, something we don't already know, but he's going to show us how to put it into practice. And then we'll kind of chart a course forward on how we ought to live with one another. So that's where we're headed. So you should be in James chapter 4 by now. We're going to read the first five verses. Here's James 4, verse 1. What causes quarrels and fights? What causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. You adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you suppose it is to no purpose that the scripture says he yearns jealously over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us. Let's pray before we go any further. Oh Lord God, we are grateful that we get to gather together as the people of God this morning, open your word and hear the truth. And the truth is our hearts are set on conflict because our hearts are set on our own desires, our own passions, our own preferences. And so I pray, Lord God, by your spirit, as we read and study this passage from James, would you soften our hearts and mold them and shape them into the image of the heart of Jesus so that we might have his desires, his passions. Lord, help us to want what you want. Help us to submit our lives to you, to see that what you have for us is far better than what we could ever dream of. I pray that we would put to death this desire for conflict and division and dissension. We would long for peace and unity both with you and with one another. Help us to do that by your grace as we study your word. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, as I said just a few minutes ago, uh, the first point is all about the cause of conflict. So what's the cause? It's our sinful desires. The cause of conflict is our sinful desires. James does not mince words here, does he? What's the cause of quarrels and fights among you? These battles among believers. Remember, he's talking to the believers who are dispersed throughout the Roman Empire. So what's causing these quarrels and fights among you, Christians? It's your passions at war. My desires and my pleasures are headed straight into a crash course with your desires and your pleasures. And there can only be one winner, or so we believe. And so when we get into situations with our friends and with our peers and with, with people in our church, we often have our preferences, our desires, our passions as the primary motivating factor for how we live and operate in those contexts. And if we all do that, friction and conflict is inevitable. 
James calls it like he he sees it. He says, you desire, but you don't have. So you murder. Now, I don't think James is literally talking about ending someone's life, but I think he has something more in mind of like what Jesus was saying in the Sermon on the Mount, that if you're angry towards your brother and have hatred in your heart towards your brother, it is as though you have murdered him. This anger and hatred we have towards those who don't give us what we want is a murderous desire. Then he says, you covet and you cannot obtain. So you fight and you quarrel. So you you want something you don't have. You see that you want it and you grasp for it because you cannot have it. This is clearly seen in my son. Right? My son, Abe, you have seen him. He is adorable. He is amazing. He is a sinner. And... If he loses a toy, for example, because of his disobedience at home, we take something away from him, and he knows, son, you are not getting this back today. Like, decision made, you are not getting this back. He understands those words. He understands that that means I'm not going to get that Spider-Man toy until tomorrow. But it does not stop him from pitching a fit and melting down and thrashing about just because he knows he cannot have what he wants doesn't keep him from responding in sin. And we do the same thing. It's just more sophisticated. We just don't look like toddlers thrashing about on the floor. But we'll stop talking to a person or we'll say cutting things about them behind their back. When we covet and cannot obtain, we fight and quarrel. And why is this the case, he says? He says, you don't have because you don't ask. You don't have because you don't ask. In other words, this is the case because we're not taking our desires to the one who can provide for us. We're not taking our passions and our preferences and our desires to God. So what does quarreling and fighting and conflict and tension in relationship often expose in your heart and in my heart and in every heart of a believer? Prayerlessness. It exposes our failure to go to God in prayer because we operate in our own strength according to our own pleasures and passions. And when we do that, we forget God. We do not cry out to him, but instead we convince ourselves we can figure this out. I can manage my conflict. I can even win against those who I have considered my enemies, either in this room or out in the world. Or, James says, you don't have because you ask wrongly. So you don't have because you don't ask. you're, You're prayerless. You fail to go to the one who can actually provide for what you need. Or when you go to him, 
you go to him with all the wrong motivations. Listen to Peter Davids, a, a James scholar. You heard from him last week. Here's another quote from him. He says, but we do pray might be their response. You pray, but it is not effective for your motives are wrong. They're not seeking God's will or God's wisdom, but their will. It's as if they say, God bless my plans. Their motive is their desires or pleasures. God's goal is not to give human beings what their own impulses demand. His goal is that human beings will learn to love what he loves. It is not that God does not want people to have pleasure, but that he wants to train them to take pleasure in what he knows is truly good. As with Christ, crucifixion comes before resurrection for God's people. You see Peter's point? This kind of behavior of going to God to get what you want is failing to see what the purpose of prayer really is. You ask and you ask wrongly because you fail to see that God is not your butler. He's not some cosmic waiter just waiting for you to ask for something so that he can give it in abundance as you command. No, he gives you these situations and these affections and passions are stirred in you, perhaps so that you might go to God and say, God, what am I going to do with this? Will you help me to see what you see, to know what you know, to love what you love, to desire what you desire? And that's going to require dying to ourselves. We'll get to that in just a moment. Well, this kind of behavior of fighting and quarreling, of not seeking God in prayer or seeking him with the wrong motivations because of our own desires and our own passions and our own preferences is, as James says in verse 4, adultery. Adultery. This kind of behavior and prayerlessness is spiritual adultery. It is saying to God, the one that I have covenanted with for a life, an eternal life of covenant faithfulness, you're not giving me what I want, so I'm going to go somewhere else and find it. It's adultery. It is covenant-breaking unfaithfulness. And it is none other than idolatry because we cannot long for the passions of our heart according to the world and love God. I can't do those two things at the same time. In the same way that I can't be faithful to a spouse and be an adulterer. I can't do both of those things at the same time. It is unfaithfulness to the Lord. And James's point is God will not be mocked. When you and I need to see and kind of sit with for a minute that who James is talking to, yes, is believers in the first century dispersed all throughout the Roman Empire embroiled in various controversies and frustrations and rising persecutions that lead to conflicts within their own ranks. But by the Spirit of God, He is talking to you. To you. And He's saying, 
that when your heart and your desires override your commitment to Jesus, what that sin is like is not nothing much. It's adultery. God says that he yearns jealously over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us. And that word jealously, jealousy and jealously when applied to God is not as you and I think about jealousy. We think about jealousy often through the lens of envy, right? I'm jealous of him because he's stronger than me or he's more popular than me or he has something that I want. That's often what we think about when we think of jealousy. She, she is so much more popular than me or has so many more friends than I do and I, I want what she has and I'm, I'm jealous of her. When God says that he's jealous in the Old Testament, it even says that his name is jealous. It's where we get the, the name of God, Elkanah. His jealousy is like that of a husband over his bride. It's almost as if, uh, if I and my wife were walking out one day and another man started to very blatantly, very clearly start hitting on her in front of me. The jealousy that I feel in that moment is not, ah, he looks so much more attractive than me. She's going to fall for him. No, it's this, according to the covenant, she is mine and I am hers. And what this person is doing is threatening the purity of that reality. So my jealousy is for her in this context of covenant commitment and faithfulness. And this is what God's stance is like over you as his child. He's jealous for the spirit that he's given to you. So see that your sin is not just simple, small disobedience to some command in some book. It's unfaithfulness against a God who lovingly yearns for you jealously, jealously as his own. And it should be so clear that the case and cause of our conflicts is not out there. And when you think about maybe even the conflicts of the people in this room, it's not out there. The source and cause of our conflicts is in here. We are the problem. Our sinful passions and desires lead us into all kinds of quarrels and fights. We mistreat one another and then get frustrated when we're mistreated. That's the bad news. That's the cause of our conflict, our sinful desires. But look at verse 6. But. Now, just a small hermeneutical principle. Often when the word but is used... There are good things coming. So James had just spent the last five verses showing us the bad news of a conflict that lives in our heart and leads to all kinds of awful, sinful desires and passions that breeds even more conflict. Verse six, but he 
That is the one who we have been unfaithful to, the one who yearns jealously over us because of the spirit that he has made to dwell in us. He gives more grace. Therefore, it says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. God opposes the proud. That is warfare language. The opposition that God has towards the proud in that verse is like that of a competing army. We do not want to be opposed by God like that. But he gives grace to the humble. So what does that require? It requires that we acknowledge our sin. You acknowledge your sin. It requires that we would lay down our pride and the weapons of our warfare so that God might give grace. And we lean into his loving grace through humbling ourselves in repentance and faith. That leads us to the second point this morning, the cure for our conflict is repentance and faith. Look at verse seven with me. So before we read, just empowered by the grace of God and confident in the love of God and aware of the cause of our conflicts, James is about to give us nine commands with a few connected promises. And I just want to say this before I read this, that our following these commands does not lead us to getting God's love. Remember, God already loves us because James is talking to his brothers and sisters. He's talking to believers, those who have already been saved by grace through faith. But as believers who have that spirit that God has given them, our response for our whole life ought to be a loving faithfulness to what he has called us to do. And it is rooted in repentance. It's, it's why Martin Luther, when he gave the 95 theses against the Roman Catholic Church and their use of indulgences to offset purgatory for Catholic believers, when he nailed those theses to the door, the first one is this. When our Lord and Master Jesus Christ said, repent, he willed the entire life of believers to be one of repentance. Our entire life. So listen to these verses as a way of life. Verse 7. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will exalt you. This is a framework for an entire life of loving God, and obeying his commands, and living in a way that does not breed conflict and war, but peace. First, submit yourself to God. Surrender to his lordship. 
God is not just your Savior. He is your King. It is His will that is to be done in this world, not yours. This is a lifelong practice. This is the purpose of prayer, that I would submit myself to God and His Word and His ways. Second, resist the devil and the connected promise. He will flee from you. We have a real enemy Alongside our sinful desires and our passions, we have an enemy who prowls around like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour, who is an accuser of the brethren, who is a slanderer, a liar, the father of lies, who is murderous. His words are filled with venom and poison. He's the deceiver, but he is not invincible and he is not unstoppable. And we've been given the armor of God to wear in the battle, which includes the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. So resist him. Resist the temptation of the enemy to believe what is not true. Don't act as though he isn't real, but don't act as though he's an unstoppable force. Third, draw near to God and the connected promise. He will draw near to you. This is astounding. Moving towards God is a pathway to joy and contentment. Why? Because the more towards him we go, the more of him we experience. And it is in him that we find joy and contentment. And notice the contrast between God and the devil here. If I resist the devil, he will flee. If I draw near to God, he comes near. It shows you where their hearts actually lie. Is the desires of the devil actually for my good? Well, no, because when I resist his lies, he runs and flees. But when I lean into the heart of God, when I lean into being present with him, being uh, faithful to him, finding him in his word, he comes close. Fourth, And it's connected to the fifth. Cleanse your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts, you double-minded. Listen to Sam Albury talk about these two promises, or these two commands. He says, notice repentance involves both the hands, cleanse your hands, and heart, purify your heart. Actions and attitude. Behavior and mindset. It must always be so. Repentance of attitude without change in conduct is no repentance at all. Nor can we expect to change our behavior without seriously changing the thoughts and attitudes that lie behind it. So notice what Sam Albury is saying. We look at our actions and we look at the desires that have motivated them. And we bring both before the holiness of God. We bring them both before trusted brothers and sisters. We open ourselves up to both encouragement and accountability. If all we do is do the right thing, but our hearts are not changed, you may fool some, but you will not be fooling who matters most. And often, you're not fooling as many people as you think. Right? We, we all know this. We all know that you've, ob- you've obeyed your parents 
in a way that your heart has not changed at all, right? Go take out the trash. Right? Like you did the thing, but you did not obey. And I just, I mean, as a parent, I know it's not going to get easier as he gets older and is able to think through things more clearly. But even now, we're trying to have these conversations with our little two-year-old. Son, we want you to do the right thing, but we want your heart to be right. We don't just want you to have the right actions. We want you to have the right attitude. And just like him throwing the tantrum in our first point, you and I have not graduated from this. In your friendships, in your families, if God gives you grace, in your marriages, you're going to have that conflict of you may be saying and doing the right things, but where is your heart? Or I can see that your heart wants to do right, but here are all these things. And by God's grace, he's surrounded us with brothers and sisters, with spouses, with family members who can look at both our actions and our desires to be encouraged and to be held accountable. Sixth, be wretched and mourn and weep. If we feel more sorrow over losing a video game or not making a sports team or not being in that girl's group or fill in the blank, then the sorrow that we feel in considering our own sinfulness before God, we have exposed a deficiency in understanding both God and our sin. Conviction of sin will not just produce a resolve to be faithful. It will produce godly sorrow. And I heard it a thousand times as an intern and even more as a person on staff under Brother Al. And you've probably heard this before if you've been here long enough to have Brother Al in your life. Help me to hate sin, especially the sin of my own heart. Help me to hate sin, but especially the sin of my own heart. Not that we wallow in despair, but that we see it for what it is. Seventh, let your laughter be turned to mourning. Connected to eighth, let your joy turn to gloom. This is not God wanting you to just be unhappy and be like Eeyore from Winnie the Pooh all the time. This is, if you were here with us in the spring, this is Ecclesiastes. This is the idea that you and I don't escape from reality. We don't run from our problems. We don't run to entertainment or zoning out or busyness, or other things, and think that our problems are going to get fixed. We face it. Life is hard. Things are difficult. And your heart is in need of repair. In fact, I would venture to say that for probably all of us in the room, there is some relationship that probably needs to have the work of mending done at your initiative today. Like based on what James is saying and based on what my own heart and mind knows and based on what I think is true of humanity, if if that's true, then every one of us can think about someone that we would do well to consider taking the initiative today of saying either, hey, I said this and I did this and I'm sorry. 
Or, hey, seven years ago, you said this, you did this, and I've held on to it ever since. And it's produced bitterness in me that I want to put to death. And I need to confess that to you. There's probably every one of us probably can think of somebody. Ninth, humble yourselves before the Lord. And here's the promise. He will exalt you. As we do these eight things, this ninth will fall into place. And the promise that goes with it will be ours. If we live lowly, if we live our lives in humility, not immodestly. And what I mean by that word is when I think of modesty, I think about uh, showing off for the sake of showing off. It's not just what you wear. It's, it's how you live your life. So if you live your life modestly, live lowly, you make space for God to exalt you. And the promise of this text is that if you humble yourself before him, he will. He will lift you up. He will hold you. So that's the cure. A life of repentance and faith turning from our sin, clinging to God's promises. So how do we very quickly as we chart the plane or as we land the plane, chart a course forward? Look at verses 11 and 12. Do not speak evil against one another, brothers. The one who speaks against a brother or judges his brother speaks evil against the law and judges the law. But if you judge the law, you're not a doer of the law, but a judge. There's only one lawgiver and judge. He who is able to save and to destroy. But who are you to judge your neighbor? So in verses 7 through 10, that section on the cure for conflict, James has our vertical relationship with God in view, right? So what am I doing before the Lord? I'm humbling myself. I'm turning from my sin. I'm believing in his promises. I'm to submit and humble myself as I live out my repentance before God. But that leads us here in verses 11 and 12 to address not our vertical relationship with God, but our horizontal relationship with one another. He says, don't speak evil against one another. Now, some of your translations have the word slander there. But listen to Peter David's again on this verse. I think it's really helpful As I was looking at different translations, he says, Christians are not to slander one another. A better translation might be speak evil about or say bad things against because slander often implies in English that the things said are untrue. And the Greek word does not imply this. As far as James is concerned, whether the things said are true or not, critical words divide the community and are not in order. Paul would agree, as would Peter. So if you're talking about another person and you have in your heart, I'm not saying anything that isn't true. That's not a loophole. Just because you aren't spreading slanderous rumors about someone when you gossip about them doesn't mean that you've fulfilled the law. There is a place 
to show concern for a brother or a sister based on their behaviors or their attitudes or their actions. But let me tell you where it isn't going to be found, behind their back with your friends. That's that's like never the right place. That's never the proper context to say, well, let me just air out all the things that I've seen about him. Or let me air out all the things that I've heard that she's done. And I, I know that this is true because I saw it. James says the one who does this speaks against the law, particularly the one to love your neighbor. And when we do that, we make ourselves above the law. We make ourselves a judge of the law, which means we put ourselves in the position of the lawgiver who is God. And that is the height of idolatry. The point is that speaking evil towards another person, especially your brother or sister in the Lord, is more serious than you think. If you want to parade around in your life acting like the lawgiver who renders judgments, then you should not be surprised to find yourself liable to the judgments of the true lawgiver and judge. So as we diagnose the problem of our conflicts and we recognize the cure both vertically and horizontally, we once again find ourselves, if we're honest, absolutely in need. Because not one of us can make it through these 12 verses unscathed. Not one of us can read this and go, yep, not a problem for me. No, so that it, it leads us to run again to Jesus the author and finisher of our faith, the one who took on the punishment of the law for us and for our salvation. The one, think about this, who never spoke an evil word. And he knows everything about everyone. I mean, John tells us that he knows what is in man. He knows their heart. He knows their thoughts. And yet, evil never came out of his mouth. Which means there's hope for us to find grace. As this passage promises, he gives more grace.